I went to bed before the Nevada caucus results came out. I'm glad you went to bed. It was yeah. it was worth going to bed over. Yeah. Um, for for five, 536 votes for uh, for Ryan Binkley. Welcome back to Politics Is Everything. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, and I'm Kyle Kondik. So, Kyle, uh, a lot going on this week on the elections front. This week was the South Carolina Democratic primary, and Joe Biden won 96% of the vote. Anything interesting that we should take away from that? So we were looking for indicators that Biden might be having some sort of primary problem. Uh, And if you look at what happened in South Carolina and Nevada in his own party's primary, you got 96% South Carolina, as you said, got about 90% in Nevada. Um, And so those are those are positive perfectly good performances for a, you know, for a sitting in, in, incumbent president in these primaries who doesn't really have um, really credible uh, opposition. Um, one thing to kind of maybe look out for in the future here is like, if in fact there is sort of lasting extra damage to Biden from the release of the special counsel report and these sort of qu- newly raised questions about his age and ability to do the job, does that weaken him in the primaries at all? Does that suggest that there's even, you know, that there's maybe more trepidation among the Democrats who are showing up in these primaries to actually renominate Biden. My suspicion is that we won't see that, but I'm I'm just curious to see if that if that manifests itself in the, you know, in 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 the coming weeks. So that might be one small way to look at whether there is some again lasting fallout from uh what happened on Thursday. You know, another thing, but on that point, would we necessarily see the fallout in the primaries? Because only his ardent supporters are really going to show up at this point. Right. I don't think I don't think opposition is going to mobilize at this point. And so at least in the at least in the primaries. um, And and then that could, you know, that could mask some of the challenges he'll have in the general election. Yeah, that's right. I guess it's another one of these things that like I I would say that, you know, these primary performances are good because they are not bad and that if the primary performances stay strong you know that at least is 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 uh uh is is positive for the president because it's not another indicator of weakness but it also doesn't mean that the other indicators of weakness are wrong if that makes sense so like the the bad polling the bad approval rating the, the troubles amongst the broader electorate i mean obviously biden is going to need the numbers to just get better over time and to make this election more of a clear contrast between him and Trump, a contrast that Democrats are hopeful that Biden will win. Um, but again, the numbers right now just are not not good enough. But then then the question is, it's like we're, we're thinking, oh, well, things could or maybe will get better for Biden, but like maybe they get worse, too. And then that's, you know, that's where um, this election really becomes very concerning for for Democrats. I don't know if we're necessarily at that point now, but we're sort of looking at what the tra- trajectory here is. So this week was also the Republican Nevada primary and caucus, and there were actually two separate elections uh, for the Republican candidates. Um, the primary election was basically a dog and pony show. Um, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was on the ballot, uh, but there was also an option for none of these candidates, which actually... Uh, did better than Nikki Haley at 63 to 31%. Uh, and then former President Donald Trump overwhelmingly uh, uh, won 90, overwhelmingly 199 to 1% in the Nevada caucus, therefore taking all of the state's uh, uh, 26 Republican delegates. Um, any takeaways from Nevada, 
Kyle? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it, it, I think it tells a, a familiar story in that, you know, Nikki Haley does have some support within the party, um, but Trump just has way more. I mean, I think none of the above was sort of a, it was a proxy vote for Trump in the, in the non-binding primary. Uh, and obviously that, that, that won a big share of the vote. You know, we are coming up on South Carolina here. We're about two weeks away from that Republican primary. Um, every indicator suggests that um, Trump should win that primary very comfortably. Uh, and then you get into Michigan and Super Tuesday, and and that's where, uh, you know, Trump could really just assert himself and start winning tons and tons of delegates uh, and basically, you know, get get closer and closer to kind of officially wrapping this up and becoming the presumptive nominee once he gets a uh, you know, a, a majority of the available delegates, which he really could rack those up quite quickly because a number of the states coming up, uh, and then particularly after mid-March, uh, are winner-take-all or kind of like effectively winner-take-all. Um, and that's where, you, again, you could really start building a, a, a pretty insurmountable lead. So um, I, I, I just don't, it just doesn't seem like Haley's really getting any traction. Well, let's talk about what's going to be down ballot this year. You have two new fantastic analyses on the crystal ball this week. Uh, The first one looks at the role that ticket splitting may play and whether or not that will have any effect. And I think in particular, one of the things that you find is perhaps uh, there should not be many worries that Donald Trump will impact um, any down ballot races um, that House candidates in the past um, actually ran ahead of Trump in some of the key races um, uh, in in the 20, both in 2016 and 2020. So let's start with that analysis first and then talk about um, the House updates. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, that, you know, I just because Trump has been around for so long and is headed on his way to be the, you know, the, the, the three time consecutive Republican presidential nominee, there's this kind of familiar storylines like one of them is an argument that Nikki Haley's campaign has has apparently been making, which is that um, Trump would be such a bad general election candidate that he would drag down Republicans in the House and cause them to lose, you know, lose the House and and to lose the the Senate. Um, But but, you know, what you do find is that, well, first of all, the Republicans did relatively well in the House in both 2016 and 2020. Um, You know, they lost a few seats in in 2016, but they were already at at a very kind of a historically high point coming off 2014. Uh, and then in 2020, Republicans didn't win the House, but they came very close to winning the House, which helped set up their their eventual victory in 2022. Uh, and you did see, um, you know, Republicans in the key districts were likelier to run ahead of Trump than Democrats in the key districts were likelier to run ahead of Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020. Now, I guess you could argue that, hey, maybe if the Republicans dominated someone else, that person would do way better overall than Trump, and it would be the rising tide that lifts all boats, and Republicans would do better down ballot. But um, first of all, I don't know if that's necessarily true. It's quite possible that that hypothetical new candidate would do worse than Trump. Uh, and even you know, even in the situation where Trump is on the ballot, um, Republicans have, in key races, been able to create some of the, the needed distance between themselves and Trump. And that's going to be really important in 2024, potentially, because- uh, the Republicans are just defending more seats that Biden carried in 2020 um, than Democrats are defending seats that uh, that Trump carried in in 2020. Um, so in some of these places, you're, you're, you are going to need, um, if you're a Republican, you know, to create real distance between yourself and, and, and Trump. Uh, although, you know, maybe the presidential race goes differently. You know, if the the popular vote is more like a tie than than Biden by four or five points, um, then that that changes the margins in some of these districts, too. And 
maybe even some of these, uh, you know, Biden Republican districts end up voting Republican for for president. But bottom line here is just that I think this, you know, yeah, it's possible that, you know, by the time we get to the election that Trump will be doing poorly and that'll be a, a, a negative effect on Republicans. But we didn't really see that in either 2016 or 2020. The House of Representatives elections are shaping up to be closely divided and contested. Um, but you are what you're finding in your analyses is that Republicans continue to be closer to the magic number of two, 218 uh, in the crystal ball ratings. Um, but you also made seven House ratings changes this week with four benefiting Democrats and three benefiting Republicans. Um, I wonder if you can talk about some of these key races and what it might mean for election outcomes. Yeah, the the, the two biggest changes, I think we're moving uh, Jared Golden, uh, a uh, a, a Trump district Democrat in, in Maine second district and Don Bacon, a Biden district Republican in a uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, moving both of those races from leaning to the incumbents to toss ups. And I think a lot of that just has to do with, you know, recognition that that, that the, the other party is, you know, is going to win those districts for, for, for president in all likelihood. Um, and it, it seems like both of them are going to have relatively credible opposition um, and, and, and so that's, that was sort of the thing that stood out. And so that makes the number of toss ups, tw- uh, 20 total, which on one hand, I guess maybe sounds like a lot, but this is a 435 member chamber and the vast majority of the district districts are rated either, either safe for the Democrats or, or, uh, safe for the Republicans, uh, overall, uh, 212 districts are safe, likely, or leaning Republican 203 are safe, likely, or leaning democratic. And then you've got those 20 toss ups. Um, one of the ways we sometimes do this is, you know, you, you just sort of describe the toss-ups as 50-50. And so if they break evenly, you know, 10 to 10 for both parties, um, you would have a 222 to 213 Republican House, which is the exact same result in, in 2022. So I think you could, it, you know, the ratings do suggest, I guess, that, that Republicans are slightly ahead, but I'd broadly describe the race for the House as a as a toss-up. Um, and you know, we also just coming up here. Uh, we've got this a New York three special election on. Uh, I was uh, going to ask you about that. Yeah, too. <laughs> and then I'm coming up on 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 uh, um, Tuesday, February thirteenth. Uh, whenever you're you're listening to this, um, and uh, you know, I think you probably still rather be the Democrats in that race in a in a Biden plus eight district than the Republicans. But um, both sides are viewing it as close to competitive. There's a lot of outside money coming in, uh, and so that's a that's a you know it's an important one to watch. Well, Kyle, thank you so much, as always, for sharing your expertise and analyses with us. Thanks, Kara. Listeners, you can find links to the new crystal ball analyses by Kyle Kondik, The Race for the House, Part 1 and Part 2, in the episode notes. Coming up next, we talk with Richard Tao, who is president of Engages and the leader of a new project with focus groups with voters who will decide the 2024 election. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Kara. I'm Zoe Shook. I'm a second year intern at the Center for Politics. I'm Tyler Bush, a fourth year intern with the Center for Politics. And I'm Etienne Watt, a fourth year intern with politics. Joining us for this conversation is Rich Tao. He's president of Engages and is conducting focus groups with voters in key states regarding the 2024 elections. The 2024 Deciders is a project with SAGO and the Syracuse University's Institute for Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship. Thank you so much for joining us, Rich. It's an honor to be with you. Um, I wonder if you could just start by sharing a little bit about uh, the 2024 Deciders Project and the current focus groups you are conducting with voters. Um, 
And most importantly, I'm I'm really curious about um, your methods for uh, selecting some of the participants that you are talking with. Sure. Well, let me put this all in a bit of context. The Deciders Project is an outgrowth of a project that I've been working on for the last five years called the Swing Voter Project. That's a project we've been doing with Trump to Biden voters. And prior to the election, it was Obama to Trump voters, looking at what matters to them, both politically and in terms of policy. So each month we do a different pair of focus groups in a different key swing state. And one of the people I've been working with on that project is a woman named Margaret Talev, who's the head of the Syracuse Institute that you referenced a little bit earlier. So she was at Axios, uh, and she was working with me uh, on the Swing Voter Project for a long time, flipped over to Syracuse, and we started talking about additional focus groups we might do over and above these swing voter groups. And so we approached uh, some various media partners about this, and it turns out that uh, NBC News was interested in covering these uh, decider groups. And so what we're doing is, over and above the Trump to Biden voters, we are additionally now conducting focus groups with other important categories of voters in the 2024 election. So the first groups we did were women in Pennsylvania who voted for Donald Trump, usually twice, sometimes uh, just once in 2020, who are all pro-choice. So those are the groups that we did initially on January 31st. We're scheduled to do groups with other key categories of voters. Those would be first-time voters under the age of 25, uninspired and and somewhat conflicted African-American voters, similar category of Hispanic American voters. Uh, We're looking also at uh, people who voted in the last election for third-party candidates, how they're going to shake out. Uh, We're interested in household where there's at least one union member, because there's a huge fight this year over uh, who's going to get union support and union endorsements. And we're also looking to do groups of Arab Americans who become a much more interesting category of voters from an electoral perspective since October 7th. So throughout the past two election cycles, what do you consider to be the most important um, voter demographic that Democrats and Republicans should target going into this presidential election based on swing voter trends? It's really hard to know which is going to be the single most important of those categories. I have a hunch that in a couple of swing states, the Arab American vote is going to matter way more than it did in the past. Uh, although we don't know how much of the frustration that community feels toward President Biden, whom they supported very strongly in 2020, how much of that's going to be residual in 2024 when they go to vote? Uh, I have a hunch that that is going to matter. I, I think profoundly people in, in the under 25 category are going to matter because I've been seeing some data suggesting that a lot of them are so upset about having the choice between Trump and Biden that many will migrate toward a third-party candidate. And my analysis of what's going on with these persuadable groups of voters is that they don't want to be psychologically burdened with the idea that they chose someone who they really, really aren't happy with. And if they could choose a third party and kind of let themselves off the hook and say, well, I didn't vote for Biden, I didn't vote for Trump, if one of them went, I'm not responsible, 
I think a number of people under 25 in particular who maybe not have voted before or maybe voted just once, um, they're going to look at, at the two choices they have this year. And I think a lot of them are going to opt for a third party. And then the question is, how many votes does that siphon from Biden or siphon from Trump? And I think the siphoning effect is likely to be among the most powerful ones in this year's election. Just a quick follow up, Rich, on that. Um, uh can you talk a little bit about what that, how, how psychological burdening works and, and what that effect is? Well, yeah. so when I ask my swing voters whether they want to be rid of both Trump and Biden and move on to a third party or ca- candidate or have a different choice, many of them say that they want another choice. They want a new generation of candidates and they're unlikely to get them in this election cycle unless something catastrophic happened to both Trump and Biden. So. From from their perspective, they're they're saying, I really I don't want to choose between castor oil and wheatgrass juice. Right? I don't want to have these two horrible alternatives because the aftertaste is going to be bad. And to, metaphorically, in your case, the aftertaste is a psychological aftertaste. You know, there, there was that old joke, like, you know, 50 years ago when Nixon was going through Watergate, people rode around in their, in, with cars that had bumper stick, stickers saying, don't blame me, I voted for McGovern. So uh, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of psychology that goes into this. And I think for people who take this seriously, and most of the people I talk to take it seriously, they don't want to have to defend the vote. And it's very hard to defend a vote where you know you're picking the lesser of two evils. Um, so for this question, I just wanted to know, um, obviously, in a lot of these focus groups, we're focused on um, key vote, key voters, key voting blocks um, and swing voters in particular. Um, but how should we approach already decided voters um, on either side in these focus groups to sort of gauge um, where they're willing to compromise on issues and see how to get them to vote and participate um, in the process in a more bipartisan manner um, and to really bring back um, that enthusiasm uh, for voting uh, for these voters that are you know, feel really strongly on one side or the other in, in this situation. So there's a couple of ideas wrapped up in the question that you asked. Um, I think the idea of getting people who are very strongly in favor of a candidate on one side or the other side to sort of try to see the other side's point of view and work together. You're seeing in Washington, literally in the last several days, the consequence of people's inability to work together. This whole immigration debacle that we're watching is a function of a party saying they want something, and then when they're handed that thing, saying, no, I don't want it anymore because it's, it's bad. And I think the, one of the greatest challenges we're going to have is finding the ability to move people to move together and, and, and work together. And I don't know what it's going to take to do that. It might be some sort of national emergency, national catastrophe, where the imperative of working together is more animating than a desire to stay in their own camps and revert to their own comfort zones. And right now, the, there, there's nothing pushing the two sides together that is forcing that to happen. Nothing on the scope of like the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor and isolationists and interventionists suddenly having to work together to to protect and defend the United States. You know, I, I hate to think that something catastrophic is required to make both parties to work together, but that's my what might be what it has to come down to.
So I want to drill down a little bit on um, this first focus group that you had with um, uh, with women in Pennsylvania. Um, I, I think it was probably not surprising that their positions on um, abortion and reproductive rights, uh, at least what I heard, and, and I would love to hear what what your takeaways were, but one of my takeaways was that the economy and immigration are far more salient than reproductive rights for women, in, in, at least in the focus groups that you conducted for women in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and for me, there's also there's some important implications for that as we are currently seeing the Biden campaign make a big push on uh, to, quote unquote, restore Roe. That's their big campaign push right now. Um, so if it's if it's not if that is not resonating with with a lot of the voters that you're talking to anyway, is this is this a strategic uh, mistake <laughs> um, uh, on behalf of the Biden campaign? So I guess it's a two part question. One, um, tell us a little tell us what your takeaways were about um, women and the Dobbs decision and and where they are right now on reproductive rights versus the economy and immigration as a more salient issue. And then two, you know, is are are the is the Biden campaign making a strategic mistake in focusing on Roe? What I would say is we learned some really interesting things from these pro-choice Trump voting women in Pennsylvania. The first thing we learned is that of the 15 we interviewed, 12 of them would stick with Donald Trump. And the five-way race was Trump, Biden, RFK Jr., Joe Stein, and Cornell West. Of the remaining three, two would take RFK Jr., and one would take Biden. So what I concluded from this is that this is not fertile ground for Biden to try to pick up votes from women who are ardently pro-choice and explain to me in great detail why they're pro-choice and how deeply they feel their pro-choice beliefs. Yet, despite that, that issue does not resonate for them nearly as much as economic issues and immigration-related issues, which for them are sort of one and two on their list, and abortion and defending Wolfie Wade or reinstating Wolfie Wade is like three, four, or five on their list. So this is just a pecking order issue for them. And I don't see Biden dislodging them. They have too many issues with Biden personally. They think he's old. They think he's infirm. Some think he's senile. They think he's weak. In effect, you will go down the list of negative adjectives. So they're not, they're not thinking that they want him, first of all. And secondly, what was stunning to me is that I think only three of the 15 blamed or attributed the Dobbs decision, at least in part, to Trump. This whole idea that Trump named three justices who made the overturning of Roe v. Wade possible is not something that's in their mind. They're not thinking it. It's not what they believe. They just don't know. And so the, the linking of Trump to the overturning is is a very heavy lift. So that's, that's an important part of it. When I read to these women a quote from Trump saying that he, he was chowed, that he, that he helped uh, 
dismantle Roe v. Wade. Their response was, well, okay, he shouldn't be saying these kinds of things. It's kind of tacky for him to say that. But, you know, that's how Trump is. And so they kind of dismissed it as Trump being Trump. And they like the more positive things that they see in Trump. And this is a negative in, in their minus column of, of Trump support, but it doesn't overwhelm or, or replace the positive things that they, that they see. So they have a pretty nuanced view of Trump. That is all they're all in love with him. There was a mixed feeling about him in these groups in terms of general overall support. Um, those women sort of thinking, well, he, he's a bit yucky, but you know, he, he does what I want. And with that mindset, I, I, I'm, I'm, I really question the ability to move a lot of these folks back into the Biden camp. So that kind of gets to your second question, which is, is this a bad strategy for Biden? And I think what's really important, and a number of people have made this observation, it's not unique to me at all, is that in the special elections that have taken place since Dobbs was, Dobbs was, was uh, uh, decided in 2022, What's happened is that abortion has been on the ballot as an issue itself, separate from candidates who support or oppose it. And that's a very different phenomenon than having a candidate who carries in him or her a variety of positions on a variety of issues. And I think what the Biden folks are trying to do is they're trying to make Biden be the personification of reinstating Roe. But Biden is about more than just reinstating no, however much he can or cannot do that. And he's about the economy. He's about the problems at the border. He's about uh, uh, the Middle East, about Europe and the war in Ukraine. He's got a whole bunch of issues that people associate with him. And the idea that suddenly that Biden is going to voting for Biden means basically just one thing, you'll get a low back, I think is a bridge too far. So I would question that strategy. Uh, and not overinterpret the decision of voters, where the only thing they were deciding in those cases was the question of abortion. Thank you so much for confirming my priors. Happy to do it. Um, also, uh, we I, I think the headline for this show is Row Not Fertile Ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, a, with, with pun intended, right? <laughs> Karen, absolutely. Um, I, so I also, and, and ATN's going to jump in here soon, too. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things we're, we're deeply concerned about um, at the University of Virginia and at the Center for Politics is some of these broader questions about democracy. Um, and, and, and it was really interesting to me listening to your um, focus, focus group discussions. Um, not surprisingly, um, you know, people who were likely to dismiss Trump's broader behaviors you know, did not think um, that he was either an insurrectionist or posed a threat to democracy. And your participants who, you know, didn't have an affinity for Biden thought he was a threat to democracy. Um, there also seemed to be a pretty decent correlation between those positions and a separate question you asked about where people got their news. Um, uh, and and seeing that, you know, those who primarily got their news from Fox um, did not think that Donald Trump was a threat to democracy, also did not think um, that he was an insurrectionist um, and, and can, you know, had the opposite views of Biden. So 
I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about um, what you found in in those discussions about democracy. Um, and and whether, um, you know, it was interesting to me, like it was, it seemed that it was very challenging to get people to sort of name what a threat was and why they were threats. And I think that has some really important implications as we are framing what is and is not a threat to democracy in this year, um, as as we're seeing that term being politicized. The idea of being a threat to democracy, it's all in the eye of the beholder. So six of these 15 women said Joe Biden was a threat to democracy. And why was he a threat? Well, it wasn't because her supporters charged the Capitol on January 6th. It's because they don't like Biden's policies and the vulnerability that they think he imposes on the United States. Economic vulnerabilities, national security vulnerabilities, uh, border security vulnerabilities. So those are the threats that they see President Biden responsible for. And that's why he's a threat to democracy. So threat to democracy in the minds of some of these respondents is, I don't like what this person is doing. Ergo, it is a threat to democracy. You got to keep that in mind. So the threat to democracy notion tied to January 6th is a very different threat to democracy. And only one of these 15 thought Donald Trump was a threat to democracy. Remember, they think Trump is doing their bidding. That he's doing what they want him to do. So in what way can you be a threat to democracy? For them, democracy is the role that Donald Trump is trying to impose through policies that he would support. So he's doing what they want. Ergo, that's not a threat. So the, the notion of democracy as a thing is lost in some of this conversation. So I just want to circle back to um, a point you made earlier regarding uh, shifts to third-party voting. And my primary question related to that would be, have there been any leading indicators um, that you've observed within these focus groups that suggests the shift to third party third party voting may be stronger within uh, one of the political party bases than the other? And then maybe if you could also, if if there is some relevance there, um, how is that maybe related to the under twenty five voter base and the Arab voting base, which you highlighted as well? I definitely think that the shift as it exists now is to Trump's benefit, not Biden's. And I've seen some polling that suggests that when it's a head-to-head race between Trump and Biden and such, whatever level of support, uh, Trump is ahead uh, slightly in some of these key states. And then when you add a third-party candidate like Robert Kennedy Jr., more of that support for Kennedy comes from Biden than comes from Trump. And that's the issue that Biden faces, is that there's more siphoning away from Biden going on with third-party candidates than there's siphoning away from Trump. And one reason why I think, for example, you don't see Trump attacking Robert Kennedy Jr., because he knows that Robert Kennedy Jr. has the potential to get the election in Trump's favor. I've seen polling where Kennedy's ahead of Biden and Trump among people under 25 in key swing states. So, but again, that, 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 uh, that hurts Biden more than it hurts Trump. So you look at places that where there are huge concentrations of younger people, University of Wisconsin, Area in around Madison overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly went for Biden in 2020. Helped tip the state of Wisconsin to Biden, just that one county around, around Madison. So you have to keep in mind, if, if Biden can't count on that, then he could lose an entire state or set of states because voters under 25 who are, make up, who are, are the difference between winning and losing will tip the election one way versus the other. 
Rich Tao, thank you so much for taking the time to share your work with us on Politics is Everything. Well, thank you, and thanks to your great students who had excellent questions for me. Listeners, we have several links in the episode notes where you can find more about Engages and the 2024 Deciders. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.